The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So it's wonderful to be back here at Insight Meditation Center. I love to hear about the offerings you all have when I come down here. There's so much. And um, I always have a bit of mudita for the things that you all have on offer in terms of the Dharma here. Um, Tonight I'm going to talk about equanimity. It's a classic Dharma topic. Um, You know, it's one of the Brahma Viharas. So it's one of the four, what's called the divine abodes. Um, It's that balance of the other Brahma Viharas of compassion. It balances out the other Brahma Viharas of loving kindness, compassion, and sympathetic joy. Um, it's, a, it's one of the ten paramis, so it's a quality that supports our awakening. It's in a lot of the list is what I'm saying when I'm bringing it. It's a classic Dharma topic. It's one of the seven factors of awakening. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening. So in the seven factors of awakening, mindfulness leads to investigation of phenomena, which leads to energy and effort which leads to rapture or intense joy in the object of our meditation, which leads to calm or tranquility, which leads to concentration, which leads to equanimity. So it's one of the promises of the practice. Um, But what, you know, it's such a classic topic. um, But one of the reasons I I think I was kind of a little inspired to talk about it tonight um, is that it's such a, you know, I'm kind of fascinated by how Many of um, many aspects of the Dharma are really require us to kind of decondition ourselves from things that we um, we have kind of imbibed from dominant culture. Really, really kind of ask us to look at the world much, much differently. To look at our experience much, much differently. To relate to our experience much, much differently than the way that we're um, commonly many of us have been told to look at it and this equanimity you know it's really it's really um fascinating from that perspective um to think of to contemplate a way of relating that's both both open and compassionate um and yet um really centered in non-reactivity so it's about a kind of a way through practice, through all of these, you know, this intense, this mindfulness, increasing mindfulness that leads to a deeper understanding of the way things are. In a way, our kind of, our hearts kind of break wide open. And yet what we emerge out, what merges out of that is a deep calm or peace or non-reactivity, a way of aligning ourselves with the, with the real vicissitudes of life. And, um, and this non-reactivity is, I mean, it's really, I mean, in a way, we can look at what's going on, I think, in my view, and I think it's kind of fair to say, um, in a lot of the wider discourse in our society, um, it's not non-reactivity which is being valued so much more and more. It's almost as if, well, we'll be effective through being really reactive and we'll be effective through... Um, 
through um, yeah, through the opposite of equanimity, right? Through the opposite. Um, the more blaming we can do, the, the, the more things are going to work out the way we want them to. That, that seems to be one of, the, one of the messages, at least, that, that I see um, I'm getting through some of the things that are going on in society. Um, and this is really quite the opposite. So it's, it's truly um, interesting, and it seems almost paradoxical that we would have this kind of openness and compassion at the same time, this, non, this, this sense of non-reactivity um, to, to all of the vicissitudes of life. So look, let's, look, let's look into this. I mean, what is this non-reactivity to, really? Um, and, you know, from a dharmic perspective, it's, from, it's to a constantly shifting experience we have of constantly changing pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences. All of us have that. That is the human experience. Actually, that's, that's what's going on for all sentient beings. Um, it's... So, it's, so ec- the equanimity we're talking about arises out of understanding more closely that that's actually what we're experiencing. And in mindfulness, we see this over and over again, more clearly, more clearly. That's why mindfulness shoots down all the seven awakening factors and ends up with equanimity. Because we see, we stop, we actually look and we turn towards our, ex- our experience, which we're constantly turning away from. And we see more closely over time, moment of pleasantness, moment of unpleasantness, Reactivity, we see how that's harming to ourselves. We see the suffering that's in that. We start to see also um, by turning towards experiences that we are kind of neither pleasant nor unpleasant and we ignore them like the breath and certain aspects of the breath, for example. We start to see how not paying attention to that uh, makes us tune out and not understand the truth of the way things are and not understand how we can align ourselves with the actual experience of life so that we can have more peace and ease in the midst of it. So we start to see more. This, this non-reactivity is to that core experience that we all share as sentient beings. We're extremely sensitive, and we also are quite fragile, and our experience is fragile. It's one of... The kind of one of my favorite um, now. It's becoming one of my favorite translations for the word um, dukkha. You, you know, dukkha meaning the the, the suffering that uh, the Pali word for that's often translated as suffering. Um, and the first noble truth is that um, there is suffering in life. There is this dukkha, but really, it's sort of an unreliability and a fragility. It encompasses a lot more than simply the kind of um, suffering we think of as our, which is um, a big part of our suffering, but is this, is the, the sorrows of life, the difficulties of life, the physical pains and the emotional pains. There's that, but there's also the fact that underneath it all, we know, we know that their um, life actually consists of, of, it's actually quite fragile, Right? Any pleasant experience we have, we can't really hold on to. And we see that more and more also in our practice. So that's the, the dukkha of impermanence, the, the fragility of life. Um, and then there's actually the dukkha of conditionality where we start to see that you know, everything, um, there's a lot of conditions coming at us and that, we, we, we're not under con- we're, that are not under our control, like that 
constantly shifting pleasant and unpleasant experience. So the equanimity we're talking about encompasses, is, is a very deep, deep equanimity that would encompass sort of a stillness and non-reactivity to all of that. It's, um, it's kind of awesome in that way. It's not a sort of a superficial, well, just one day I'm, I'm happy and I, I'm, you know, something bad happened and I could handle it. It's, it's quite, a, quite a deep, a deep realization that we have of what our experience is and an alignment with it. So we kind of have this craving to solidify our experience. Um, and one of the more interesting experiences I had with equanimity relatively recently um, was in um, my practice. I, was, I did a month of practice in November. Um, and I, for the first couple of weeks or so, um, the mind just became, was becoming kind of more still, and the practice seemed to be going quite smoothly, um, or relatively anyway. There was a great deal of peace and ease in the practice coming in. And suddenly I was in the hall and I happened to, uh, I was in the hall alone and um, sitting and suddenly it's like the mind had gotten to this place where it was like almost, almost concepts in the mind hurt or there was just a significant amount of stillness and I noticed this and then all of a sudden in the middle of the sit, these anger thoughts, these stories just came like a storm kind of really out of nowhere um, and I was just, it was just, um, quite, it was quite the opposite of what I had experienced. And what was interesting about that was that I was able to notice that this was, this was, a, this was the mind reacting and not really, and being afraid of the stillness, being afraid of the non-reactivity, being afraid and, and needing to create a whole really reactive, strong idea of me up against this, I mean, the stories of anger are really unimportant. And there was a part of me that realized, I said, these are kind of ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, I was really mad about something. I would, yeah, I knew I was mad about these things, that this anger would come, but it wasn't really nearly as momentous as my mind would have made it out to be. And, um, and, there's this way, and I, I, I had some level sense of a uh, sense of what was going on, but nevertheless, it, these this just keep came kept coming in my mind, um, and and I talked to my teacher, and she said, "Oh, Tara," um, and she just said it really pithily. She said, "That's Mara trying to solidify. That's Mara trying to solidify anger stories. That's Mara trying to solidify, and Mara. Um, for those I don't know how many people, Mara's. I love the idea of Mara. Mara is this personification of the hindrances and the defilements. The personification what is, of what stands between us and awakening. Really, you know, all of the um, mind states that harm us, um, all of the mind states that might lead us to harming behavior for ourselves and others. Um, and Mara was trying to get in the way of me seeing, you know, and this happens to all of us. We get to points in our practice where we, where we've, um, where, you know, we may be seeing a lot, we may be progressing to some degree, and then we get to a place in the practice where um, we run up against our old, we get run up against the mind, the limitations of the mind, and um, 
some kind of old cycle of suffering might come up again. Um, and Mara was trying, couldn't, there was some way in which maybe I would have seen more the lack of solidity in experience then. The real, the, set, the fact that all of these shifting and changing things um, that were coming through the mind, that, that they really could not define me, they, that, that there, really, um, there really was more of a not-self or an emptiness to experience through which there would be greater freedom and non-reactivity. But the heart, you know, the heart-mind wasn't ready to do it, and it just Mara came and solidified. It was pretty fascinating to see in those moments. So we can see, and, and, and um, it's just interesting to look at what's, you know, the opposite of equanimity, um, those moments where we are not reactive and uh, where we are reactive and what they consist of to point us towards sort of what is, what is equanimity. Of course, equanimity as a Brahma-vihara, the, the far enemy um, of equanimity is any kind of reactivity. Um, the near enemy is indifference, and I think I'll come to that a little bit more later. Um, that's what we, we'll, we might mistake for equanimity is, is indifference. We might you know, mistake sort of a coldness um, for equanimity. But to look at sort of the opposites and what's happening when we're not having equanimity um, what's happening when we're really angry? And looking at that, how so- solid and contracted our sense of self is and how we have this, it's almost like um, there's this whole story of righteousness often, often that's going on or impatience. Um, impatience is a really interesting thing. I was fascinated. I was uh, read a little bit of what Gill had written in a short article about equanimity before this talk, and I was interested to see that Gill wrote that colloquially in India, the word "was" sometimes used, I guess, in Pali to mean um, equanimity was used to mean to see with patience, to see with patience. And impatience is such an interesting thing to practice with, to see what the mind and the heart is doing. Um, one of my favorite teachings that I got when I um, was lucky enough to practice in Burma for a while was Sayada Upandita. As I remember, he said, um, one of the things he said is that patience is a form of anger based on conceit. So there's this com- conceit meaning comparing mind. So it's like, I get to have it, that person shouldn't. Like, I get, like, like um, with impatience, there's this feeling of entitlement. There's this feeling of, um, I get to sort of, I get to have it. So there's this contraction when we don't have equanimity. And impatience, I almost saw it as kind of funny once in my practice. Because I was practicing, um, again, I was on a little bit of a long practice period, and uh, I was in line to wash my dishes and I noticed this moment where I, th- where I just thought I should be ahead. <laughs> the line. It was like impatience. And I realized underneath that was this like actually physically impossible feeling like I should be the one in the front. Um, and it's... Um, <laughs> And so, and you can see this sometimes. I don't know if you experience impatience maybe when you're driving, when you're in line. If you look at it for a minute, it's, it's interesting. It's in that another moment of the mind solidifying. You know, it's, it's the opposite of reactivity. Sometimes we can get impatient. I don't know about your experience, 
But I can get impatient about the, si- the silliest things. I mean, you know, again, being in line, thinking that I should be ahead when clearly I'm just not. Um, <laughs> you know, being in a car, thinking I should be, you know, um, already around the corner when I'm not. And <laughs> there's, it's pretty fascinating what the, what the mind can do. And um, great when we can sometimes take a step back and have a sense of humor. But to think about how the mind is just is just take, is just, there's this deep unsatisfactoriness that we sometimes have, right? This underlying, like, um, it's not okay the way it is, even just where I am physically right now. And um, this sense of a sort of solid sense of self that gets to have things differently than the way they are. Um, So we can practice with those and seeing our moments of non I mean, get, in this practice, we make the difficulties our path, right? We make the, you know, the, fam- the kind of famous line, I think it was Chung, uh, was, um, Trungpa Rinpoche who's, who said this, that no mud, no lotus, right? No difficulties, you're not going to see anything. You're not going to see the truth. When it, recently, um, when I'm teaching, that really struck me. Um, I heard in a talk from... Um, Tenzin Palmo, um, great Tibetan nun teacher, and she was talking about compassion, and it really um, struck me when she said that there's two ways you can respond to suffering, because we've all got suffering. Many of us have got some pretty serious stories. We've got some pretty serious suffering stories. You know, this is the this is the Dharma scene, so we got some dukkha stories in the room for sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, believe me, I was like, I'm in Dharma teacher training. Uh, <laughs> there's some dukkha stories going on. Um, you know, but, but here was Tenzin Palmo speaking in Israel about compassion, you know. And we're all in the middle. I mean, we are in the middle of some dukkha. I mean, we're in it. So, um, but one of the, it's just, she just, you know, I don't know if I can repeat it. But she framed it in this, in this amazing way, saying, um, you know, there's two choice. There's choices that we have. There's a choice we have with compassion, with our suffering. We can actually use it, given that we've all got it, and we've got the deep stuff that I was talking about, the fragility, and we've got our stories. Um, also, our individual stories. We can use it to have to build compassion for others. We can use it to see the nature of it and to cultivate compassion and to spread that out or we can completely collapse within it. There's basically our two choices. And it was just really interesting to me and I think it's true that you know there is the collapsing into it and the only other choice really is to use it, to actually see it as a source of, of our ability to open to others to have compassion to use it not just to get in touch with it but to actually use it make it the seed of something make it the seed of something otherwise it can be quite collapsing and this is not irrelevant to equanimity at all because compassion is is part of equanimity um, compassion is necessary for, for this kind of equanimity. And compassion, that kind of compassion where you're using your suffering, um, you're seeing it as something that can, that can be a seed 
um, for something greater, for something to grow out of, is the kind that can support equanimity with that suffering. Otherwise, we can collapse under it, which is the opposite of equanimity, right? So, the other thing, I mean, that supports equanimity is to, as I said, is to, is to really align ourselves with, with these deeper truths that we are, we're able to see. And, and one of them is the, the not-self nature of, of all of this stuff that's coming and going. The not-self nature even of our dukkha stories. You know? Um, ultimately, that's really freeing when we can see well, that's, you know, that's not me, that, um, that story of suffering that I, ha- that I have. Another, another thing that Sayadaw Upandita said that really struck me, um, and maybe it was just his transmission, the way he was saying it, what, um, but he was talking about that quality of, that quality that we have that actually is what is a very positive um, it's, a no, it's actually a non-worldly, unpleasant experience that's um, positive, which is hiri, which is that moment of kind of shame. And shame is the word, that, that's the translation, but it's this moment of regret that we have when we do something harming, maybe harming to ourselves or maybe harming to others. Um, and he just, he just said, um, it's important to know even in those moments that the defilements, whatever led you to do that, that's not you. That's not um, whatever it was that, that led you to say the lie or um, take the thing that wasn't offered or um, to uh, use that harsh speech. It was coming in a, uh, through conditions, and it's not you also. So we, we also have to learn to have equanimity and the courage to practice with all of these kinds of things that we experience, which are not only the things that, that come at us, but also some of the things that we may create, kind of harming, we aren't creating them, but the harming conditions that come up, that come up in our, because of our conditioning. So really understanding these deeper, this deeper truth that, that, these conditions aren't me, myself, or mine is another real source of, of, of supporting equanimity in our lives. Equanimity also helps us, helps us to practice with the eight worldly winds. Um, the eight worldly winds, which we all experience, the gain and loss, the pleasure and pain, ple- gain and loss, pleasure and pain, pra- praise and blame, Fame and disrepute. This is another thing I think we see a lot of um, coming and going in our larger um, discourse in this country is a lot of the change, shifting, changing of gain and loss, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. But we all experience it. We all experience it all the time. Um, and we anticipate experiencing it. Um, we anticipate that we might be blamed and, or we anticipate that we might have disrepute and we, we have to practice with all of that. Um, there's no one who's left out. 
I mean, one of the beautiful things about this, this teaching, I think, with the worldly winds is it's just, it's the, human, it's the human condition to go through the shifts and changes of this. No one's going to miss it. So when we're in the midst of a situation um, where we're, ha- we're in the, ple- the pain part or the blame part, we can practice with equanimity. Um, one of my colleagues had a situation recently where she was, she was, got some criticism she was experiencing like some really harsh criticism. And it was so interesting to her that she just did an equanimity practice. She was really upset about it from the way that she was describing it to me. And she went and she, she just did silently to herself an equanimity phrase, which I don't, if, if you're not familiar with what you can do with an equanimity phrase, it's similar to a metta phrase, metta practice or a loving kindness. You can use the, a phrase to cultivate that state of mind, that wholesome state of mind of equanimity. And the simple, one of those more simple ones are may I accept things just the way they are. And so she went and she had all this, had this heaped criticism and she went and she, she just did the practice, may I accept things just the way they are. May I accept things as they are. May I accept things as they are. And then was able to just be, well, this is happening right now. This criticism is happening right now. And then, have, and then, and then we can, when we do something like that, when we cultivate that equanimity, either by um, purposely bringing it to mind or we're able to respond in that way, then we can have the space in that moment, not to, not to literally be reactive, not, to actually face and deal with the situation at hand without being sort of snowed under by the, the, that, huge, that kind of that sense, that contracted sense of self that just doesn't want it to be happening, that just didn't want the criticism to be there. This shouldn't happen. This person shouldn't have criticized me. That's actually not, it's going to stand in the way of an effect, effectiveness in life. And that's one of the things that I think is really fascinating about equanimity is that it's very empowering. It's very empowering. And I love talking about how this practice is empowering. Um, So Howard Thurman, who's a great civil rights leader, um, he talked about, I think in this quote he's talking about equanimity. He uses the word equilibrium. Um, and he was, you know, he was just a, he was really a, a mover and shaker behind the civil rights movement. Um, someone who really, um, someone who was involved in the most, in the major events and also in the underlying strategies, such as the nonviolence and the civil disobedience. And he said, if a man knows precisely what he can do to you, or what epithet he can hurl against you in order to make you lose your temper, your equilibrium, then he can always keep you under subjection. So if a man knows precisely what he can do to you or what epithet he can hurl against you in order to make you lose your temper, your equilibrium, then he can always keep you under subjection. So if we cultivate a way of living that having a certain epithet hurled against us does not shake our equilibrium, then we can act against the forces of subjection. Um, And again, there's lots of name-calling going on much much of the time. So this is quite, this is something that... um, 
is really timely, I think. And um, there's so much Dharma in this, and in, in, I think in what Howard said, in what Howard Thurman said. I mean, we often, it's, it's something interesting, too, to perhaps apply it to ourselves, because we often throw epithets against ourselves, or some of us, many of us do, <laughs> in this particular, um, again, dominant culture. We've been conditioned, many of us, for self-blame and self-hatred, and we can look at the mind, and if, if our mind, if, if we have patterns of self-judgment or self-criticism, um, and we actually let them throw us off-center, if we, if we hear it and believe it, and then we lose our equilibrium in the midst of it, well, the, then we are kind of under the subjection of our minds or our conditioning. But it's very, it's very powerful to be able to see these kinds of self the internal epithets that people might experience, to see them and to see um, the harm that might come from believing them and to actually just see them as passing thoughts in the mind rather than, the, than that as anything can, that actually um, has a validity that would keep us in subjection. So it's kind of a question in terms of equanimity of how we can, you know, the extent to which we can see the phenomena that are coming as conditioned and not us. And that's what I was referring to by sort of the, the being able to uh, see that the conditions are not me, myself, or mine is a real support to, to cultivating this non-reactivity, kind of peaceful, easeful, loving, compassionate non-reactivity. And this points to, and I think Howard Thurman's um, quote also points to one of the really important things to keep in mind about equanimity. Um, And people can so often mistake the teaching of equanimity as a teaching of inaction or teaching of, as I said, indifference is actually considered the far enemy. So you might mistake equanimity for indifference, but that's not what it is. But not only that, it's not something that, it's not something that turns you into a door, is supposed to turn you into a doormat or something. Um, Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. And I think Howard Thurman points to that. But think about it also, even on, I mean, just, that's just one example of, of one quote he's, he gave. Um, but when we think about some of the most effective um, means of social change, I mean, sort of civil disobedience and those things can be seen as kind of real models of non-reactivity. But even in, even in kind of smaller ways... I think equanimity, in a way, is really the is often the root of the most kind of effective ways that people can act in the world. I was re- I recently just watched this um, documentary, A Problem with Apu. I don't know who anybody has seen it. Some people might have seen it. It's co- it's it's kind of pretty um, popular. I think I saw it on Hulu. Um, and it's this um, South Asian American comedian. Um, he did this documentary on the problem with Apu, who's this character, for 28 years on, um, on uh, The Simpsons, totally stereotypical Indian uh, convenience store owner character. Um, 
And the documentary is, is fascinating. He, he, um, one of the things that he says, you know, he's basically challenging the actor and the, he's ta- challenging the producers and the, and, and, the, and the actor who actually does the accent for Apu. Um, he's challenging the actor to be in the documentary, but also to drop the, the, the role, essentially, to, to stop doing that. The actor is white. You know, it's like a white actor doing a stereotypical um, Indian convenience store owner um, accent. And, and there, th- he goes really deep, deeply into it. Um, and he says, look, you know, this has been going on for 28 years. And, um, and you know, I've waited 28 years, actually, to do this documentary. And, and you know, describes really carefully... Um, all, a lot of the impacts of this stereotype over the years with by interviewing a lot of South Asian American comedians and other people and talking about the actual experiences that they had with, being, with stereotypes that they had to deal with, bullying and things that actually literally arose out of the Apu character. Um, and then, you know, he's challenged, like I said, he's challenging the white people who were involved in creating this character. Um, and there's no way that someone can do without some core of equanimity in response to you know the 28 years of the stereotype there's really no way that someone someone can create something to challenge the status quo in a way that is um in a way that's not just like full of rage and and would probably and would often you know actually end up in maybe a backlash or wouldn't be as clearly communicating, as clearly speaking to power about what it is, what's happening. So we can see equanimity and how it works in the world, and we can see equanimity and how it's how it's really the ground of a lot of the most um, effective ways that people work for change and people work to make other people's lives better. I mean, it's really um, It's really the essence. It's, 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 it's interesting in that relationship. It has that core relationship to compassion. In that way, you can see that the, where they're actually connected. Pema Chodron said the essence of compassion is to be there for people without pulling back in horror or fear or anger. So we, can't, we, won't pull, we will pull back in horror or fear or anger if we don't have the equanimity. So we have to have the equanimity so that we can have the compassion and we can have the effectiveness. So I just kind of want to, um, that's about as much as I'm going to say tonight about equanimity. I just want to close with a quote from Ajahn Chah, who always just puts things really, really beautifully, poetically, actually, poetic Dharma, Dharma teacher Ajahn Chah. He said, one man watches a river flow by. If he does not wish it to flow, to change ceaselessly in accord with its nature, he will suffer great pain. Another man understands that nature of the river is to change constantly, regardless of his likes and dislikes, and therefore he does not suffer. To know existence as this flow, empty of lasting pleasure, void of self, is to find that which is stable and free of suffering, to find true peace in the world. So again, we, um, we really see this equanimity by looking closely at the nature of the way things are. There's our practice, when we're just sitting, 
We're just noticing and we're, we're just bringing mindful awareness to each moment of changing experience, whether it be pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, is all in the service of this greater ground of, of equanimity, this greater ground of equanimity that can then turn into compassionate relating in the world. And in that way, this sort of ultimate reality that we're seeing is, is, is really, can't be, is really overlapping with a conventional reality where we bring that out in our, every, in our experiences, where we bring it out, where we bring out the heart to, of our, our own hearts open to ourselves in compassion and to others. So there's like, there's about five minutes if anybody wants to talk about any questions about equanimity or practice or anything. With you, like saying, um, you're projecting yourself ahead in a line. Mm-hmm. Where is it, Where do those two connect? Right. So I'm not. So not having had your exact internal experience, <laughs> um, not quite sure that I can speak exactly to that. Um, but if you're sitting in a car or you're sitting in a line, there's really, we really don't have control. This other person is doing whatever they're doing, right? And I think that, that what I was trying to point to is the sort of futility, <laughs> regardless of whether the thought in the mind is, like, I actually have the right to be ahead or that person is doing the wrong thing. That person is doing what they're doing in that moment, Right? And as long as we're, as long as we're not only shaken by that and wanting it to be different than the way it is, but also kind of in those moments of impatience, really fascinating and interesting to look at. The way that the mind is so convinced it's right that that other person <laughs> should be doing what we actually don't know. We really don't know what's going on with that person. There could be a myriad of things, right? Um, and you know, how many times have I gotten impatient and wanted to honk the horn and then I see that the person has stopped because there's somebody crossing the crosswalk? <laughs> you know? I mean, so... <laughs> so, I would... I mean, what I'm really pointing to is just look at, the, look at what's going on in the heart-mind and how much it hurts in those moments. Over what? Like, over... Wow, I'm not five feet ahead of where I th- think that I should be? Wow, that's intense. It's intense. And, and um, it's, yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, like my sister said, we're, our family's born with this like uh, an anxious kind of uh, complex always going on, like anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. Yeah. There is an anxiety is definitely one of the things that, I think contributes to impatience or it's like they're related often in in some way. And I have a lot of anxiety in my particular family also. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. 
So, I mean, to look at the fear also, if there's anxiety there to practice with the fear, and there's a, often a, quite a contracted sense of self there too, one that um, is it, just incredibly um, worried about uncertainty. Um, and so to look at that also, um, I had this moment, thought about bringing into the Dharma talk, but it was, uh, for whatever reason, when I was sitting here before um, talking, there were some moments of fear or anxiety, and I was actually able to kind of laugh at them. I thought they were, they were kind of funny. Um, <laughs> there was, it was like, um, oh, what could really go wrong? Um, <laughs> what could really go wrong? You know, in the, in the scheme of the eight worldly wins, there might be some, there's some, there's always going to be this shift of losing and gaining, you know, and blame or, or fame or whatever. It's just always going to be shifting and changing. And when we can really see how that's really going on, to, to get caught up in a moment of, of, of worrying about an outcome um, can really that the, you can kind of see the humor in it and the, and the fact that, like, there's not really anything to hold on to, right? Yeah. was um, to witness my child, my adult child, and, and she was suffering. She was emotionally mm. suffering. And um, she might have thought it was indifference, but it was incredibly, incredibly uh, painful and difficult for me to witness that without rescuing, without intervening. You know, I was, you know, witnessing my loved one in pain, and it wasn't indifference. Yeah. It was... The hardest thing, I, one of the hardest things I've ever done. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes all we can do is witness. Yes. But witnessing can be a huge thing, also. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I, you know, I was, you know, hoping that she w- wouldn't suffer for very long and that um, everything would be okay. But not to, you know, not to change what was happening, but mm-hmm. to stand there and, and and bear it. It was like, wow, mm-hmm. you know. It was incredible compassion. Mm, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I mean, when we love someone so much and they are suffering and there literally is nothing we can do, which is an experience that many of us have, but I think with a child it's a particular experience. And, um, and, and just to know that that's all that one can do and to accept that, then that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that compassion that was in that. Appreciate it. Yeah, so it's one minute after 9 o'clock. Thank you all for um, your practice and for your participation.